All right, so we've been looking at the life of Abraham, Father Abraham, and uh, we're at, at kind of the climax of his life, perhaps the most famous event in his life, you remember. Remember the story of Abraham, he does all this stuff, God makes all these promises to him, and when he's, I mean, he was a childless man, and when he was 75, God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, that's a little hard to believe, but okay. And so Abraham tries to do the right thing, and he's following along with what God has told him to do and, and all that. But uh, 25 years later, the son hasn't arrived. And so I think at that point, Abraham's th- saying, well, maybe that was a metaphor for something, or <laughs> maybe that was just a figure of speech. Maybe it's not going to happen. But God comes back to him. He's 99 years old and says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And his 99-year-old man says, well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm not, not quite sure how this is going to work. But then you know the story. Isaac is born. God gives him a son. Hope against hope. A hundred-year-old man and a woman in her 90s have their first child after waiting 70 or so years. And so, so it seems like the promise is coming true. But then and the son is growing up and he's healthy and he's strong and they have a great relationship and they're having, they have this, this great uh, family, you know, a couple great-grandparents and this little boy. But uh, then, you know, comes to this moment in the story. God says to him, Abraham, I've got another instruction for you. Genesis 22, if you want to follow along, it's in the, this little insert here. After all these things, he's had this son, his son is growing up, everything looks like it's going well. God tests Abraham and says to him, Abram, here I am. Abram answered, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abram got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son, Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, a three-day journey, Abram looked and saw the place in the distance. So he said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abram took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abram, and said, My father. Abram replied, Here I am, son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb. They arrived at the place God had told them about. Abram built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out and took the knife and was about to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord came to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram. He replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know 
that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed this command. This is God's will for God's children this morning. So this is the story, perhaps the most famous story in the life of Abraham, one of those most famous stories in, in all of literature and, and in all of the, the Bible, this, this challenge where God calls Abram to sacrifice his son. And, you know, this story gets to the essence of the greatness of Abraham. I mean, you know, here we are, we're talking about Abram 5,000 years, at least 5,000 years, who knows, a minimum of 5,000 years since he, uh, since he lived. And today, 5,000 years later, half the world's population, all the world's Christians, all the world's Jews, all the world's Muslims consider Abraham their great patriarch, the great source of of all that they have and all that they are. So Abraham is an example to us of what it takes to be great in God's eyes. And there's so many things about him that show us the way. Abraham was called by God to leave everything. And so Abraham stepped out in faith and he left everything. Abraham trusted God through a lot of difficulty. He certainly wasn't perfect. And we've talked about how imperfect he really was. But on the other hand, he trusted God and he continued to trust God and wait for God to fulfill his promises. And he had an intimate relationship with God. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that, that one of the first the first intercessory prayer in the Bible is prayed by Abraham when he pleads for God to, to spare the city, to spare, to spare the city of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham ha has this greatness to him, but this is perhaps his, his most profound moment. Like I mentioned, God said to him when he was 75, well, you've never had a son yet, but you're going to have a son. And then 25 years later, he says, Remember that promise about you having a son? Now you're 99, but I'm still going to keep that promise. I'm just getting to it. I mean, how many of you have the patience to wait 25 years for God to fulfill a promise? It's kind of like, time's up, God. But, <laughs> but Abraham waits, and then when he's 100, when his, wife's, his wife Sarah is 90, the child of the promise comes. Everything seems like it's going okay, and then God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering in the place I will tell you about. It tells us something about what it means to follow God, what God asks of you and of me, and what, what walking with God is sometimes like. God demands 
that we obey him with everything, no matter how much the cost, even no matter how irrational or irrelevant or nonsensical it might seem. You know, for Abram to wait a hundred years for this child to be born and then for God to call him to sacrifice his son, Abram had to wonder, what kind of a game is God playing with me? There's a rabbi who, who wrote his own sort of interpretation of, of this of this line in here. It, it, he kind of dramatized it and, and added, added some things into what's called the Midrash. And he says, God says to Abraham, take your son. And Abraham says, I have two sons. I have uh, Isaac and I have, I have Ishmael. And God says, no, take your only son. And Abraham says, wait, the one is the only son to his mother, Sarah, and the other is the only son to his mother, Hagar. And God says, take the one who you love. And Abram says, but I love them both. So God says, take Isaac and sacrifice him where I'm going to show you. This is the demand that God places on Abram. This is the test that God places on Abram to see if God, to see if Abraham really wants to have, is really committed to this child or is committed to God himself. And see, for all of us, this is a challenge that we face at some point when it seems like the blessings of God and the commands of God are contradicting each other. When God places a demand on us that it seems like it's going to cost us the very blessings that he's promised us or that God leads us in a direction that requires us letting go of things that we thought were the essence of his goodness to us. God had promised Abraham a son, had promised him a legacy, had promised him that all generations would remember him and all generations would be blessed through him. And now God says, I want that son back. So God fulfills the promise and then he, it seems like he's revoked the promise. And let me tell you, the longer I live and the longer I try to walk with God and the longer I try to serve God, the more I, I can sympathize with Abraham here. Because sometimes God sends us these mixed signals and you're trying to do the right thing. You kind of know what God wants for your life and how God wants you to live and what God wants you to do. And then things happen in your life and you say, well, God, where's, where's the blessing you promised or where's the good thing that I'm supposed to have here? Where's, where's, where's the fulfillment of the promise that you gave me? I think that, that's what, what God is showing here and that God himself is still God and God has the right to demand whatever he wants from you and from me and from everybody because God himself is the reward. God says you can have the, the emotional center of your life has to be me not the gifts that I give you. The emotional center of your life has to be me and not the, not the promises I make to you or the blessings I make to you. God himself is the reward. You know, it, it seems extreme that God would demand so much of him, but then, you know, you think about life, and as, as you observe people in life, one of the things I've observed is that almost everybody at some point in their life, they choose a God. And they sacrifice everything they have 
for that God. And, you know, for some people, it's a relationship or a family situation that their, their life is not worth living unless their family looks a certain way. For some people, it's something as crass as money or it's their career or prestige or fame or fortune. For some people, maybe it's just ease and comfort and the abdication of all responsibility. But, but, we, but we've all known people, I think, if you think about your life, and maybe you've done this yourself, I think we've all done this from time to time, where, where we sacrifice things that really matter because we've fixed our mind on something we absolutely have to have. And that's the human condition. Something is going to be our emotional center, and everything else in our life will be sacrificed to that thing. But the only way your life is going to work, the only way my life is going to work, is if that something that's our emotional center, that something that we dedicate all of our life to, is God himself. You shall have no other gods before me he says. And that includes your money, that includes your career, that includes your relationships, that includes your family, that includes everything subordinated to God himself as, as the heart of our identity. And, and when God is calling you to greatness, when God is calling you and me deeper in, one of the things that happens is he tests us. He tests us to see, well, is is it me you're really interested in or just some of the things you might get if you have a relationship to me? When we're called by God, that means God is ultimate and everything else is relative. Even for Abraham, even when the very thing is the child he'd been waiting a hundred years for. The promise was to Abraham was, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. You will have a great family through this baby. But then the command was, are you willing to even sacrifice that? The question for you, the question for me is, what is your God? What's the thing you're willing to sacrifice everything for? Everybody's got a God. You don't understand yourself to understand who, what yours is. And now one thing I want you to see here is that that as strange and, and as shocking as this command sounds to us, it, to Abraham's ears, there was a coherence to this. To, Ab to Abraham, it made sense in a strange way because one of the Old Testament principles, the principles that the gods of the ancient gods had, was that the firstborn always belongs to God. You flip to the next verse there. Uh, here's, here's an example from Exodus, but, but you see this over and over again in the Old Testament. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal, it is mine. And so there's a sense in which when God said to Abram, Go and sacrifice your son, he was just basically calling in what already belonged to him. You know, Someone said, well, if God had said to him, go sacrifice Sarah on the altar, he would have known that that was a hallucination or, or that was the devil himself speaking. But God, in Abraham's understanding, had the right to call in and demand the sacrifice of the firstborn. And so from Abraham's mind, he said, well, God gave me the son and now God is taking him back and it's just mine to obey. And it just shows us that following God can be confusing. And in fact, sometimes the more devoted you are to God, the more you're trying to obey God, the more you're seeking in God your identity and seeking in God your hope, the more confusing God is going to be with the things that he does 
in your life. Because God is not predictable. And God doesn't just respond directly to the, to the inputs we give Him. God is God, and it's simply our job to trust in Him. And if you live long enough, and if God is calling you to greatness, you're going to be tested to the edge of your ability to endure. So let's see what happens with Abram as they do this. Look at verse 3. So Abraham gets this command. The next morning he gets up early, he saddles his donkey, and he takes with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He splits the wood for the burnt offering, and they set out and they go to the place God had told them about. Then on the third day Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and the boy and I will go there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and they set out together. Isaac spoke to his father and said, My father. Abraham said, Yes, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. And they walked on together. What I want you to see here, this was not an impulse. It wasn't like God came and told Abram to jump and he said, how high? What happened, God came to Abram on Monday and said, I want you to do this. And so Tuesday morning, they set out and they walked for three days. So he had three days to think about what God was calling him to do. And for three days, he kept walking on this grim journey to the place that God would show him. And then they get to the base of the hill, and they've got another day's journey. And Abram says to his, his helpers, you guys just stay here and wait for us. We'll come back. And then he's got to take this long walk up this mountain with his son. And then his son, probably a seven or eight-year-old little boy, that's how I visualize it, He's just uh, asking some honest questions. Okay, Dad, we've done these sacrifices before, and I see we've got everything we need here, except what are we going to sacrifice? And, but we see here what it is that keeps Abram going, what enables Abram to obey, what enables Abram to follow through on this terrible journey that God has sent him on, this, this painful journey. Uh, this painful chore that God has sent him on. And the thing that enables Abram to keep going, and the thing that will enable you to keep going, is even though he didn't understand it, Abram had hope. What does he say? God himself will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. He says to Isaac, I, I don't know where the lamb is. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just know God is going to provide. He's provided in all these ways up to this point, and I believe he's going to provide here. And what I want you to see here is that it's hope that enables our obedience. The only reason Abram didn't run the other way screaming is because he said, well, I know God is good, I know God is faithful, I know God is powerful, I know God is generous, so I can continue to trust in him. And in your life and in my life, what happens in these times of confusion what happens in these times when life doesn't make sense, when we've done everything right and then our life falls apart anyways, and we followed all the rules and, and everything goes wrong anyways, and we've claimed all the promises and the, the promises don't get fulfilled in our life, the thing that enables us to keep going at times like that is having hope. Having a hope in God 
himself. And our obedience, our ability to obey God, our ability to be faithful to God, especially in the difficult times and in the difficult obedience, is going to be directly proportional to the depth of the hope that we have in God, the reality of the hope that we have in God. And, uh, but, and that goes to what the definition of hope is. I like how Paul puts it in Romans 8. He says, hope that is seen is actually not hope. Because once you see something, it's not hope, it's sight, right? Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it patiently. Hope is that miraculous state of mind that you have when your whole world is falling apart and yet you still believe. Hope is, is that ability to go forward and do the right thing even when it seems like only the wrong thing is being rewarded right here and right now. And living by hope is, is the basic requirement to living the Christian life. Your ability to stay on course and overcome the difficulties you have will be directly proportional to your ability to have hope, to the extent of your hope. When we fall into hopelessness, that's when we go off the rails and start destroying our lives, right? But it's hope that enables us to continue to believe in God. You know, hope means that we don't understand, but we're going to do the right thing. Hope means we, we do believe that things are going to work out, but we don't know how. And that's the blessing of hope. That's what enables people to stay positive when there's no circumstance in their life that would, would uh, give them a reason to do that. And so I think for Abraham, he had that hope because he believed the promise of God that through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. He believed he had seen God fulfill that promise in the birth of Isaac and under impossible circumstances. So he, he knew that God was not going to abandon him here and now. He knew that God was going to continue to be with him and to work, to work things out. And so, you know, faith and hope were easy it would not be a big deal. You know, we, we throw these words around like, like it's just a simple thing. You've got to have faith. You've just got to keep hoping. But it's when it becomes hard that that's exactly the point, right? That's when you actually have to exercise it. You know, because when, when, when everything's working and your bank account looks the way you want it to look and your family looks the way you want it to look and the doctor says you're in great health, I'll see you next year, then who needs hope? You have sight. But when everything's falling apart and you get a pink slip at work and... and uh, and all, all the things that are important to you are being lost, that's when you need something transcendent to hold on to. And that's when you need hope. And that's hope that keeps us on track in, the, in those times. So, but Abraham takes it right to the limit. Look at what happens when they arrive there. Verses 9. They arrived at the place that God had told them about. Abram built the altar there and he arranged the wood. Now... His son, who was conscious, his son, who was uh, a, uh, aware of what was going on, got bound and placed on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out and lifted the knife to slaughter his son. And right there, the angel came in and said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to you. For now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your only son from me. Abram looked up and he saw a ram in the thicket caught by its horns. 
So he went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So here's this long process, the three-day journey, the walk up the hill, building the altar, tying up his son, lifting the knife over his son. And right then the angel grabs his arm and says, now we know that we can trust you. Now we know where your faith is. And then he looks up and the ram is in the thicket caught by his horns and the ram goes on the altar in his place. Abram's hope is proved. God is good. God is provided for him. And so that, that's the, the, the story here. And, and I, I think the question is, what does this mean in your life, in my life? When we're at a place where our heart is broken, where our plans are broken, where our future is broken. And this reminds us that God calls us, even in those circumstances, to surrender, to continue to obey and to continue to trust and to remember that these are tests and that God puts everybody through tests. And in fact, the higher his calling on your life, the deeper the tests are going to be that your life faces. And the more he's going to reveal to you his glory and his goodness, the more profound and more difficult and more confusing will be the tests that you have to endure. But just to put this in perspective, remember this, what we know about God from this perspective is even if Abram had sacrificed his son, the sacrifice of that son would not have been effectual to accomplish anything because it would have just been, you know, that, that it's not like that gift in and of itself would have taken away Abram's sins, let alone the sins of the whole world. And the, the sacrifice of that ram was just a symbol of something else. In the book of Hebrews, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, so neither of those were were actually effective, effectual symbols. They were just, uh, or were actually effectual. They were just symbolic of something else. Now, Bible scholars tell us that Mount Moriah, as it's used in the Old Testament, is the place that ended up being the Temple Mount, ended up being Jerusalem, ended up being the place where all the sacrifices were made. And several thousand years later, something happened. Another son of, David, of Abraham, the final son of Abraham, who was also the son of God, went up to that mountain alone. And just like young Isaac had to carry the wood for his own burnt offering, the final son of Abraham had to carry his own cross. And he would be nailed to that cross and the final sacrifice would be made. And that is the one and only effectual sacrifice. That is the one and only effective sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that makes all the difference. This is what it means to be a Christian, is to believe that the sacrifice that matters is the sacrifice of Jesus. See, every other God that you might be tempted to worship requires you to sacrifice yourself to, to that God. But the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus made a sacrifice for you and for me. And so rather than trusting in the sacrifices you've made to God, he invites us to trust in the sacrifice that he's offered on your behalf. And so God found Abraham faithful because he was willing to sacrifice his son, but God calls you and me 
to find God himself faithful because he actually sacrificed his son for us. Look at Romans 8, 31. And th this verse, there, there's, there's deliberate echoes here. When Paul writes this, this verse, he's echoing the, 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 the words of Genesis 22. He says, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to look at the cross? The cross reminds us God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. This is the sacrifice that secures you and secures me. See, through life, if, if you try to walk by faith and you try to live for God, you probably, you'll certainly have to make sacrifices, maybe sacrifices of relationship, sacrifice of lifestyle, sacrifice of things you want, sacrifice of certain intentions because you're trying to do the right thing and trying to be faithful to God. God calls us all to sacrifice. But your confidence before God, my confidence before God, is not to count up all the sacrifices we've made and say, well, I've done a lot for God, and so now he owes me. My confidence and your confidence before God is to say, look at the sacrifice God made for me. He loved me and gave his son for me, and I'm going to look at that. I'm going to trust in that, and that's all I need to know about who God is and where he's going and what he's doing in my life, and so... That's what I'm going to trust in because that's the sacrifice that defines me. You know, we all have circumstances in our life that we don't like. Like I've mentioned, we might have personal circumstances we don't like. We might have career circumstances we don't like because we feel stuck in our jobs. We might have financial circumstances that we don't like because the debt collectors are after us. We all have difficult circumstances in our life. But to be a Christian, to be a believer is to say the ultimate defining circumstance in my life is the cross, that God loved me and gave his son for me. And he did not spare his own son, but offered him up for me. So how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? After this, God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. And, but what I want you to see here is that what God says to Abraham is actually what we can say to God. God says to Abraham, because you have done this very thing and not withheld your only son, I will bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And we can say to God, God, because you've done this very thing, we look at Jesus and you didn't withhold your one and only son for us. So we know that you will do all the other things and you will provide for us and you will bless us and we are secure in you. So as we see the cross, as we understand the cross, as we live by hope because of the cross, it becomes the basis for us living great lives, living devoted lives, living even sacrificial lives, not because our sacrifices or because our obedience will win us anything or secure us anything, but because the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. And we can have hope no matter how confusing our life gets, no matter how bad the news is that we get, no matter how difficult or painful our circumstances are, we can have a hope that's not based on these circumstances, not based on the situation, but a hope that's based 
on what Jesus has done for us. Now we know that you love us. Now we know that you're committed to us because you didn't, didn't withhold your one and only Son from us. He is the firstborn over all creation, and he is the one who was given for us. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to lift up those who are being tested right now, being tested by a difficult circumstance, being tested by a difficult diagnosis, being tested by a difficult choice that stands before them. Help us supernaturally to find in the cross the hope that we need because it shows us that we can trust in you, that we can count on you, and that the sacrifice that matters is a sacrifice that's already been made, sacrifice of your son. Make that real to us. Make that profound to us. Make that transformative to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.